If this is your first time here, or if you have been here in the last three weeks, I am actually the pastor of Pursuit Church. Uh, my name is Jordan Green. It's great to meet you. Uh, we've about once a year... I try to take three Sundays off and just spend some time uh, with my family. And we got to go uh, spend a week with my wife for our 10-year anniversary and then a week with my family. And then I spent about a week with the Lord uh, just prepping for the future because we have a lot of awesome stuff coming up, launching a school in August, uh, which is incredible. We're uh, more than likely, I'm, I'm still, we got more to share in the next few weeks about this, uh, but there's a strong, still a very strong possibility we'll break ground this year on our new building uh, down at St. James. So we had a big meeting on Thursday that really helped us get farther down that road. So there's just a lot of crazy stuff, awesome stuff coming. And so we, I just wanted to take a little time to rest and prep and prepare for the future. And I'm excited about our future. Amen. Amen. So I am, I'm excited to preach this morning. Um, the series that we're going to start, we're going to spend the next few weeks uh, looking at the life of Joseph out of the book of Genesis. And this has been something uh, the last few months on and off the Lord has just really been uh, bringing me to. Uh, and, and, and as I've gone through and studied, I spent this week um, two days just really just digging deep, just kind of in prayer in the mountains alone with the Lord in, in, in the life of Joseph. And there's something the Lord laid heavy on my heart on Tuesday to kind of start this series with. And it, it wasn't what I thought I would start start this series with. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm excited about today, and I want to lay a foundation for the series, uh, but I also need to do something before we kind of get into it, and that is destroy everything your Sunday school teacher taught you about the life of Joseph. Can I do that really fast? It's always really fun. People love, love getting their uh, chilled children's uh, doctrine kicked out of them. Just show of hands, how many people learned about Joseph for the first time in Sunday school? Just show of hands. All right. So all of... I didn't see many hands. Good. So you didn't, a lot of you didn't grow up in church. I didn't spend a ton of time in church. The first service, all of the people who grew up in church, because every single hand went up. So we just found out the people who grew up in church come to the early service. People who didn't grow up in church come to the late service. <laughs> I love that. That's sociology right there. That was cool. Um, but so then maybe this will be brand new for you. Thank God. So uh, usually the way that, that the life of Joseph is taught, this is the way I hear it taught most of the time. Um, and, and the way, and, and, and the heart behind it is to really to hammer down the faith that Joseph had and trusting God. And, and, and if you don't know a lot about the story of Joseph, I'll give you just a 60-second recap. Joseph uh, was the son of Jacob, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God uh, chose Abraham to start a people group, a, a, the nation of Israel, to eventually bring about Jesus Christ into the world to save uh, the world from sins and reconcile the world back to God. And that promise uh, began with Abraham. Uh, and Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons. And the second to youngest was Joseph. Uh, and, and he loved Joseph deeply. But his brothers hated him deeply. Uh, and eventually Joseph was sold. They, they tried to kill him, but was saved at the last second and was sold into slavery. Um, and, and, and then eventually wound up 
serving a, a Potiphar, who was the captain of the guard in Egypt, makes him about the fifth or sixth most powerful man in Egypt. And, and, and Joseph served him mightily and, and greatly and powerfully, and God blessed the house. And, and eventually, he was promoted to being the head of, of everything over Potiphar's house. I said that Potiphar didn't manage anything in his household except what he ate every day. That was how in charge Joseph was. But eventually, Potiphar's uh, wife uh, wanted to kind of get with Joseph. And so she just started kind of just dropping her towel by accident every day for a series of weeks of trying to lure him into bed. That was just a modern spin. That's not actually in the Bible. Uh, and uh, Joseph eventually just was very adamant that I'm not going to sin against God in this way. And the answer is no. And then she just kind of lied, told Potiphar that he tried to rape her. Uh, and, and he grew angry with Joseph. And the way that you know that, that Potiphar didn't really believe her is because if he believed her, he would have just simply had Joseph executed. But instead, he had Joseph put in prison, but not just any prison. He had Joseph put in the prison that was built specifically for Pharaoh's prisoners. So these were like political prisoners and, and high official prisoners. It wasn't the same as the other prisoners, uh, other prisons. And so Joseph, again, there served faithfully. Uh, and eventually the jailer, the, the captain of the jail promoted him and he ruled uh, the jail basically. And, and it covered every aspect of that. And God blessed him eventually through a series of dreams and stories we'll get into later. He winds up before Pharaoh interpreting a dream. Uh, God, uh, Pharaoh sees the, the craziness at which God has blessed him. Uh, and, and then eventually promotes him to being almost most equal with himself, giving Joseph the power and the authority over all of Egypt. And then the long-term story is God used this to save the Israelite people in general uh, to, to, to secure that line so that you could bring Jesus about. But the way that story has been interpreted over the years, for the most part, for the way that I've heard it taught mostly and, and kind of the, the way that, that, that I've, you know, heard it, hear it growing up, heard it growing up, you know, uh, I don't know where that came from, um, is that it's a, it's a story of faith. And the, the gist of it is, is that if you have faith, if you have enough faith and you trust God and you live in that faith, then everybody can become the Pharaoh of Egypt, right? That if you have enough faith, then God blesses you, God promotes you. If you have enough faith, then you get wealth. If you have enough faith, uh, then, then things go well for your life. If you have enough faith, then eventually you'll find yourself in control with power, wealth, and blessing, and everything will work out, and life will be amazing from that point forward. Now, if you're not careful, you will very quickly start to tell the story of Joseph uh, in a heretical way of what most of us would probably call a false gospel like the prosperity gospel. Like if you have enough faith and you live off that faith enough, then everything goes well for you. Everything's good for you. You get healed. You don't suffer. You don't have difficulty. You have money. You have wealth. You have power. You have all this stuff. Uh, that obviously is not the gospel. That's obviously not accurate. But still, we, we, we choose to look at, at the story of Joseph. Joseph through that lens, like it's about faith. And if you have enough faith, then all of us get to rule a nation or two. Does that make sense? No, it doesn't make sense. That's the point. <laughs> that's, that's the point. Uh, the reality, though, if you really just read the story of Joseph in the context of the Bible and you study the life of Joseph, you, get, you see a totally different 
picture, a, 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 a different uh, reality is painted in Scripture. And I, I want to read this to you. It's not going to be up there because we're going to get to this later in the series. But I just wanted to read this one part to you in Genesis uh, 41, verse 41, um, and, and just read a few of this so you can understand what I mean by this. Um, so the, the, the heart of, of the way the traditional view of the life of Joseph is that there is difficulty, but if you have faith and you trust God while you're in the pit like Joseph was and while you're in the prison like Joseph was and while you're at Potiphar's house like Joseph was, then eventually you get to live in the palace. Like that's kind of the traditional view of Joseph and you miss the power of what God was actually doing and what we can actually learn from the life of Joseph to bring into our own lives. And so I, I want you to understand that though the kind of American church Sunday school version of Joseph was that life's difficult, have faith and then everything gets better and you live in a palace and you control people and have wealth. I want you to understand the way that the Bible views this and the way that Joseph himself Self viewed the palace season of his life. This is uh, Genesis 41, uh, verse 41. And I just want to read, this is when Joseph is 30 years old and he's being put in charge. He's being given this authority. And I, I want to read this to you and, and give us the context so that we can understand the heart of the story of Joseph and what God really wants to teach us. This is chapter 41, verse 41. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He made him ride in a chariot as his second in command, and men shouted before him, make way. Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Now, verse 44 is where it starts to get in this, this contextual life that Joseph is now having to live. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I'm Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift a hand or foot in all of Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name Zephaneth Paneah and gave him Aseneth, daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, to be his wife. And Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. So I, I want to I make sure that we understand the context of what's happening, the context of Egypt, Pharaoh, and this situation. Egypt was a godless nation who hated uh, the, the, the Jews, hated Israel, did not acknowledge Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Bible, did not acknowledge uh, who, what we would call God the Father, Yahweh. That Pharaoh was in Egypt was filled with all kinds of false gods. And that though Pharaoh saw that there was, he calls it a spirit of God in Joseph, he was aware that something of a supernatural realm was taking place and he elevated Joseph. He still detested and hated Israel uh, in general and this people group, Jacob's family, Joseph's family, and he still hated and did not acknowledge the God of Israel, which was Yahweh. And that, that the things that he was doing here was very specific and strategic uh, to try to Take Joseph and, and, and eliminate the Israelite in him and to eliminate the, 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 the God in, uh, of, of Israel and the covenant that God had with Israelites. This is why he gives him a new name. This is why he gives him the signet ring of authority of, of another God. This is why he makes him marry a, a, a priestess's daughter of another religion. This is, this is why he, he does what he does. He, he does everything in his power to make Joseph 
Joseph conform to Egyptian culture and does everything in his power to make him walk away from God and the covenant that he has with God. And, and, and though we have such an Americanized view of this story, Joseph proves his view of this story uh, by the names that he gives to his children. The second child that he had, and we're going to get into this later in the series, he gave a very specific name to him. And what that name meant, it was a Hebrew name. And that name meant, I'm uh, born in the land of my affliction. So when we look through the story of Joseph from a kind of an American Sunday school standpoint, we say from 17 years old to 30, there was difficulty, but he was faithful. And then from 30 on, he was blessed and wealth and power and all of these great things. So you need to be faithful in difficult situations so that you can rule nations and be powerful and be wealthy. But what Joseph said was Joseph actually called the 30 plus years living in the land of his affliction when he had the power, when he had the authority and he had the wealth and he wasn't in a pit and he wasn't at Potiphar's, he wasn't a slave and he wasn't in the prison. It was these years when he was given uh, the power in Egypt that he called the land of my affliction. So Joseph understood and, and the difficulty that he was in. The reason it was so difficult is because it was one godly man in a godless nation, in a godless culture that hated his God and daily wanted to make him live his life in a way that separated him from his God and the promises of his God. Does that make sense? And so what we actually see, what the power of the story is not that you're faithful in difficult situations and then God promotes you and you get these crazy blessings. The power of the story is what God can do if he has one faithful man, that, that God is so powerful and that God is so great and that God's purpose is so good and what God wants to accomplish that he can, that he can take if he has one faithful man, one faithful woman, even if if it's the only faithful man in a nation of godless people, God's purpose still prevails. That's the heart of the story of Joseph. Now, to me, that is a far more significant story than if you're faithful in the pit, you'll get promoted to the palace. Are you guys bothered by that? Or you guys are like, man, I, was, I, I thought you were gonna tell me if I'm faithful. The heart of this is preparing preparing people of God that if we find ourselves in a situation like Joseph did, that we can know and believe even if every single person around us hates God, that God's purpose can still prevail through us if we will trust and make ourselves available to God. That's ultimately the heart of the story of Joseph. And so what the Lord laid heavy on my heart this Tuesday to start this series with is something that I felt so strong in my heart. And I felt like that it was so powerful. And I want to read it to you, but then I, I want to tell you that, that the events that took place over the last few days make this more relevant than I ever could have believed on Tuesday when the Lord just hammered me with this. I want to read to you the, the, the introduction of Joseph. And I think that we will see uh, that it was not faith necessarily that, that caused Joseph to live the life that he lived, the way that he lived his life, but that it was something different. I want, I want to read this. In Genesis 37, three through four, uh, this was 
And this will be up on the screen. I want us to read this together. This is the introduction of Joseph's life. Now, Israel, that's Jacob, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. So what we see, the first picture of Joseph's life that we see, and I believe that this is exactly what the Lord wanted us to see, Because I think that it is this reality that paved the way for Joseph to be and become who he was. Joseph was born into this reality where he was deeply loved by his father and deeply hated by the world around him. He was deeply loved by his father, and because of that love, he was deeply hated by his brothers. Now, What I I, want to make sure that we understand is that this is every single follower of Christ's reality. Every single person in this room, every single person watching at home, every single person at a home church right now, this is your reality. You may not believe that yet. You may not realize that yet, but this is your reality, the same reality that Joseph had. You are deeply loved by your heavenly father, but you are deeply hated by the world around you. I I, want to read this to you. In Matthew, or I'm sorry, in John 15, 19, uh, this, this is Jesus warning followers of Christ, warning Christians that this would be a reality. If you are a true follower of Christ, you've put your faith in Jesus and you are saved by grace through faith. This is your reality. John 15, 19, if you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. Jesus promised and guaranteed that because of his name and because you have been saved by Jesus and because you have been filled with his spirit and because you are in the process of being conformed to the image of Christ, you no longer belong to this world and this world will turn on you and will hate you because of Jesus Christ. Matthew 10, says, you will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. This was Jesus preparing our hearts and preparing our minds for the life that we would live as Christians in this world, that we no longer belong to this world, and that in time and over time, that will be proven to us by the hatred that the world shows true, genuine followers of Jesus Christ. Now, I would argue, and I want to share something with you. When I said a minute ago, the heart of this first message to lay the groundwork for this series out of the life of Joseph is that we have to learn 
it to live in our reality, which is that we are deeply loved by God and deeply hated by this world. And I believe that it was Joseph's knowledge, this, this knowing that God was deeply loved him, not just his earthly father deeply loved him, but Yahweh deeply loved him, and he was fully satisfied in God, and that that was why he was able to prevail when his brothers hated him. That's why he was able to prevail uh, with the pit. That's why he was able to prevail uh, in slavery in Potiphar's house, in the prison and then in the palace, that, that, that the, the heart of Joseph and the mind of Joseph was wrapped up and filled up with this truth that he was deeply loved by his father and that he was fully satisfied because of this and that this allowed him the faith and the transition through the course of his life uh, to trust God in all of these circumstances, no matter how difficult and how bad and how, how uh, uh, strenuous things became. And so as I was preparing for this, I just felt this so strong in my heart uh, that, that this should be what we launched this series with. But it wasn't until Friday that I realized why the Lord was hammering us so hard and preparing us with this. Now, something happened historic on Friday. Uh, and everybody, unless you have been under a rock for the last three or four days, uh, the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade for the first time in 50 years. And it was an absolutely amazing thing. It's, a, it's an incredible thing. But... I want you to understand, and, and, and there's a different message for a different day in this, but what, what I saw, now listen, you probably didn't see this because you're not as cool as me, and you weren't strolling around on TikTok, okay? The reason I have a TikTok is because the church wanted to start a TikTok to start getting in and, and being able to influence younger people, and so they started me a TikTok. I created a fake TikTok so that I could see how good the church TikTok was doing. In the process of that, I became addicted to TikTok. It's something that I'm trying to work on. My wife has screamed at me multiple times in love. It's a real thing. But uh, Friday, I, I was on TikTok, and, 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 I, was, and I was watching uh, the reactions, and, and this, is, this is what became so evidently clear to me on Friday watching the reactions of the culture and of the world. There is a visceral hatred that our culture has for Jesus Christ and the word of the living God. There is a visceral hatred, and it has increased significantly over the course of my lifetime. Uh, and 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 the, I believe that we are heading, and, and though I think that what happened on Friday was, was a great thing, what I believe that it has done is it has armed our culture and fueled that hatred. And I think that what we'll see over the next six months to two years is the greatest divide that we have ever seen in our country. And I think that God's word and Christianity and followers of Christ will be the primary target of that. I think that we, we already live in a culture uh, that, that, duh, that, that hates Christianity and hates the Bible and hates the word of God and hates the truth. But I think that as, as the Bible promises and as the Bible teaches, uh, that, that the closer we go down the road of history, the less safe spaces there will be for followers of Jesus Christ. Amen. 
And I think that we have had a good run in our country. There's something that I, as I've studied history uh, significantly, especially the movement of the church from the time of Christ all the way till now. I've done this several times because I'm fascinated with it. And, and this is the pattern, unfortunately, that we see. We see that, that, that in cultures uh, where there is a lot of persecution and a lot of hatred towards followers of Christ, that this type of climate, it creates very strong Christians and very strong Christians tend to bring along revival and revival tends to bring along a movement of God where many, many Christians become saved and followers of Christ and that leads to good times and then the good times tend to create weak Christians. And then as weak Christians grow weaker in their faith and more silent in their faith, cultures begin to then dominate once again. And I think that that's where we are. I think that, that for the last two or three generations, we have been incredibly silent. And I don't mean in politics, because I think we've been probably too loud in politics. I think that when I say silent, I mean silent in our homes, silent in our workplaces, silent at the grocery store, silent about Christ everywhere else except inside the four walls of the church. But being loud in the four walls of the church does not do anything to change the world outside of it. And I think that what we're experiencing and what we're seeing in modern America is what happens when two to three generations of the church fall asleep inside the church. And so we're, we've created now a culture where there are, uh, the, the, my generation and, and this younger generation, the vast majority of them aren't just not followers of Christ. There is a, a, a hatred and a disdain towards the name of Jesus and towards the word of God. I believe that over the next two to three years, it will be the hardest time in American history to be a public Christian. I think that we will have to come to terms with that reality, and I think that will prove to us. I think that we will find ourselves before long, just like Joseph, living in a godless nation, in a godless land filled with a majority of godless people who hate us, hate the word of God, and hate God himself. Yet in that culture, we are called to love them and to represent Christ in a way that affects and changes the culture around us. It's, it is the greatest calling of Jesus Christ. Uh, it is the greatest calling that we could live in in history to be true, genuine followers of Christ in a season where Christ is hated. And I believe that's where we are. That's not a negative thing. I'm excited about it because every time in history we find ourselves in this place, it doesn't. we don't need 10,000 or half a million people to get excited about Jesus. We just need a handful of people who will stand up for the name of Jesus, cling close to his word, and love love the people around us to see things change. Amen? And so what I want to talk to you about this morning is what I believe set Joseph up to be able to be this type of man of God and I, I, to, 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 to walk in this. And, and I don't think that it's as much faith as we think that it is. I, I want to read to you uh, this, this, this scripture in Ephesians 3, 17 through 19. And I'm gonna move pretty quick through this. Um, I, I want you to know what Joseph learned to do. Joseph learned to live in the love of his father and to live out of the love of his father rather than to live for the love, the acceptance, and the adoration of the world around him. That he was so deeply loved by his father and he knew it that he was satisfied 
And that, that satisfaction and that, that knowing he was so loved is what gave him the faith and gave him the trust in difficult times and gave him the humility when he did have the power and gave him the ability to be that man of God when he needed it the most. And I want to I prove that to you by reading Ephesians 3, 17 through 19. This is Paul writing the, Ephesian, uh, the, the church of Ephesus, and he, he's praying this prayer over them. But in this prayer, we learn one of the most powerful things I believe that exists in Scripture for the life of a believer. Ephesians 3, 17 through 19, and I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp or comprehend how wide, how long, how high, and how deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So I wanna, I wanna, I wanna motivate us to pay attention to verses 17 and 18 by actually starting with verse 19. Verse 19 says that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That you may be filled with the fullness of God. That I think that we live in, in a world and, and that we've, we've kind of taught ourselves or laid these things out that, that it's faith that fills us up with the fullness of God. It's faith that we put in Christ that saves us, but it's not just faith that's going to fill us up with the fullness of God. Nowhere in scripture does the Bible say that faith is what is going to fill us up with the fullness of God. Nowhere in scripture does it say that knowledge of the Bible is going to fill you up with the fullness of God. I know that there are theological atheists, professors who have more biblical knowledge than you will ever have through the course of your life. Satan has more biblical knowledge than you will ever have through the course of your life. They're knowing the Bible, quoting the Bible, having head knowledge of the Bible will never fill you up with the fullness of God. And there is not a single scripture that will go that direction or teach that. that, that it, it's not deeds. It's not actions. Uh, it, there's nothing that you can do that, that to fill you up with the fullness of God. And I think that some people, when they feel empty and they feel like they don't have a fullness of God, they start kind of saying to themselves, if I just had a little more faith, if I just had a little more faith, because some preacher along the line taught you to pray that prayer and have that, you just need more faith, you just need more faith. I would argue uh, that you have all the faith that you need because Jesus said that with the faith the size of a mustard seed, you can move a mountain. And Romans says that every man and woman of God has been given a measure of faith. So I don't think that you need more faith. And even if you had more faith, the Bible doesn't say that faith fills you up with the fullness of God. There is one thing that fills you up with the fullness of God, and this is the scripture that teaches you what it is, and that is to grasp and to know how much God loves you and to know the love of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's it. That's the only thing in scripture that says that the only thing that's going to allow you to become full and filled to the measure of the fullness of God is to know the love of Christ, to know how much Jesus truly loves you. Love is different than this other stuff. The, the, the attributes of God are described all throughout Scripture. God is powerful, but nowhere does the Bible say that God is substantially power. God has all knowledge. But nowhere does it say that God is knowledge. 
God is patient. God is kind. God is a significant amount of beautifully good and amazing great things. But there is only one thing in scripture that the Bible says that God actually is. And it says that God is love. That, that, that the Bible teaches that there are three things of great significant spiritual power that still remain active on this earth, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these are what? Love. That I think that we have been enamored with faith, that we have been enamored with prosperity, that we have been enamored with biblical knowledge, we have been enamored with people going to seminary, we've been enamored with a million different things, and the only thing the Bible says that will allow you to be filled to the measure of the fullness of God is to know more and more and more about how much Jesus actually loves you. That is significantly powerful if you just stop and let the Spirit of God make that truth hold to you. He says, you're rooted and established in love. Jesus Christ is the foundation of everything in our life, but it was love that laid that foundation. Everything you are, you are because of love. God did not have to create you. God was just fine without this universe. God was just fine without this world. God was just fine with the other 8.1 billion people. But you exist because God loved you so much that his existence wasn't complete without you. His universe wasn't complete without you. He is complete without us that he saved you because he loves you, that, that, that this is how much he loves you. Let me ask you a quick question. If, if I told you on Friday night, you had, have you ever had a bad restaurant experience? Just like a horrible, horrible, like get on Facebook and slam them bad restaurant experience. I think I've only had one through the course of my life. It was horrible. But what if I told you on Friday, if I said on Friday night, you got reservations at the nicest place in Charlotte, but when you get there, you're gonna to have to wait for 45 minutes and you're gonna order a steak, they're gonna bring you tofu. You're gonna get robbed at the table. And then when you leave, you're gonna get beat up in the parking lot. And they're gonna take pictures and laugh at you and post it on Facebook and tag you in it. I can't think of a worse restaurant experience. Now there's a few people here who'd be like, that seems like a fun story, I'd probably still go. But 99% of us, if you knew how bad it was gonna be, you wouldn't go, would you? Raise your hands. No, I wouldn't go because I'm a sane person. One of the names of Jesus Christ in Revelations is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the earth. That means that God knew the depravity of man. He knew the wickedness that we would have in our hearts. He knew the sins that we would commit. He knew the rebellion or he knew the direction things would go, but he created us anyway. And prior to creating us, he went ahead and set apart Jesus Christ, knowing that he would be slain for our sin. That's why I call him the slain before the foundation of the earth, that he knew that we would be a basket case. If someone would told me how difficult kids really are, I may not have had a thousand of them. Amen. I'm not the only bad parent in here. He loved you so much, he created you anyway. He sent Jesus to save you because he loved you. He prepared eternity for you because he loved you. He loves you. We are rooted and established in love. And, and this is what Paul says. He says, oh, you got to grasp. There's two things. To be filled with the fullness of God, you have to grasp how wide, how long, how high, how deep is the love of Christ. And then to know that love in a way that surpasses knowledge. 
I'll tell you a story. We're on our 10-year anniversary uh, two, three weeks ago. And, and, and I got an opportunity to sell a boat by myself in the ocean. And when I went up to get this little sailboat, you could, you could get it from the guy, he asked a question that I didn't lie about. I watched a YouTube video the night before on how to sell. <laughs> and so when he asked me, do you know how to sell? I said, I watched a class. That was enough. He gave me the boat. So I got out on my little boat, and, and Courtney was so faithless that she said, I'm going to let you go out, figure it out, make sure you don't die, and then if you come back, I'll go with you. <laughs> so the first time I go out, uh, it, it, this is no exaggeration to be funny. <laughs> I get on the boat. I, I, I am like, I am, this is the greatest moment of my life. I'm running through the, the shallow part. I flip the thing, whatever it's called. The thing whips across. I jump on the boat as we sail across. Within 17 seconds, I slammed into the, another boat. Just absolutely hit the, it's the workers' fast boat that they pull things on. It was a speedboat. I just hit it and bounced off of it. The two workers were like, gone, just kept going. I look back as God is my witness. And I was like, that was almost the day you caught Captain Jack Sparrow. And I just kept going. And, and, and I, I got out there and when I got out, it started, the wind started blowing and I, I, it was a process. It was a slow process, but I figured it out. I figured it out. I figured out how to do this one little boat in this shallow area. And one of the things the Lord laid on my heart the same way that I didn't lie, I'm gonna be very clear about that. I told the truth. How he interpreted that truth is his own problem. <laughs> but I think that we get into our relationship with God, especially in the way that God loves us, the same way that I got into sailing with almost no knowledge. And we just kind of run out into this vast ocean and, and the, the, the imagery that the Lord put on my heart is that his love, his love is like that ocean. And when we get in, it's the first second, like we think we know God loves us, but we're still, we're still touching sand. And, and, and that the, the truth is that life, true life in a relationship with God is learning to sail across that whole ocean to understand the depth at which God actually loves us and the way Jesus actually loves us. Does that make sense? The reason that, that Paul has to pray this prayer is because the Holy Spirit made it clear to Paul that Christians do not naturally know the love of Christ even when they give their lives to him. And the reason that he has to say, just begin to grasp or comprehend how wide, how long, how high, how deep it is, is because it's an eternal love that we'll never fully grasp or comprehend. And, and, and the reason he has to say, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, I just want to read this in the literal translation really fast. It says, so that you may be fully able with all the saints to comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ surpassing knowledge. To know 
how much Christ loves you and to know the love of Christ in a way that surpasses head knowledge. Everybody in this room that's saved, everybody watching at home, if, if you were to be asked, you have head knowledge about, yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Every single night of my son's life, every, almost every night of my son's life, when I lay down with him, I sing, Jesus loves me. And, and, and sometimes he sings it with me and sometimes he looks off in space and sometimes he falls asleep in the middle of it. But every single night I sing that him and I tell him how much Jesus loves him and I tell him and he will have a head knowledge of how much Jesus loves him. But having a head knowledge does not mean you know the love in a way that surpasses knowledge. That word know, it literally, it's an experiential knowledge. It's a first-hand knowledge. I can tell you that Jesus loves you, but you know that in your head and you can recite it back to me, but you don't know he loves you in the way he loves you and you don't know the love of Christ in a way that changes your perception of life. That's what that word, that's what that word points to. To know love in a way that surpasses knowledge means you know the love of Christ in a way. You know how much you're deeply loved by Jesus and how, how, how much love and, and the power of that love in a way that changes the way you perceive your life and changes the way you perceive people and changes the way you perceive everything. It, and it fully satisfies you. And, and when you just get to know this love, the more that you grasp this love, and the more that you know this love, the more you're filled with the fullness of God. People who are full of God are not faithful people. People who are filled with the fullness of God are not knowledgeable people. People who are filled with the fullness of God are not seminary people. People who are filled with the fullness of God are people who, like me, jumping out in the ocean, they just jump out in the ocean and, and there's a process as they go through life learning the depth and the power of Christ's love and how much he loves you. It, that, this is the big part of your relationship with God. People ask me all the time, how do I need to read the Bible? What am I looking for? There's several things, but I don't think there's one more important than as you comb through the scriptures to be looking and reading and studying in a way to learn the reality of the depth of the power power of Christ's love for you. This is what separated Joseph. This is why he knew when he was sitting in the pit after his brothers betrayed him, he knew how much he was deeply loved by his earthly father and by Yahweh. And so he go, I don't understand what's happening. It doesn't mean that it was easy. It doesn't mean that, that, that he didn't suffer, but he knew. The, I, I believe what infuses and grows our faith is the fact that we know how much love we are. So when I'm sitting in a pit or I'm sitting in a prison or I'm being lied about or I find myself surrounded by a culture that hates me and hates Jesus and hates the word of God and hates everything about what I think is most valuable about life and that I'm called to love them and to preach to them and to live my life in a way that changes their life when I know that I'm deeply loved and I'm filled with the fullness of God and I'm satisfied with God. That's what gives people the power to live for Jesus and die for Jesus. That's what fills up Peter's life to, to die for his Savior. That's what Paul was joyful in prison. 
Yes, faith plays a part in it, but they were so utterly satisfied with the love of God that he could sing in the middle of prison, that he could sing on his way to being executed, that this is what sets apart men and women of God who change the world around them, those who were so satisfied by the love of Christ that they learned to live in that love and out of that love, and they quit living for the love, the acceptance, and the adoration of this world. When we become so satisfied with God, then we will never find any satisfaction in this world. So I don't think that you need more faith and I don't think that you need more knowledge, not compared to how much we need to start grasping and knowing how deeply loved we are by our Father and by Jesus Christ. Amen. I believe over the course of this series, God is gonna use this in crazy powerful ways but I think that this message is one that we need to hold on to. I think that this message is the one that, that is gonna lay the foundation for all the great, crazy things I believe God is gonna do. Let's stand this morning, I wanna pray for you. Father God, I got one prayer this morning. I'm gonna pray the prayer, Father, that you inspired Paul to pray over all of your church. Father, I pray, Lord, this morning, because we are rooted and established in your love, because Christ is our foundation and it was his love that laid that foundation, I pray, Lord, that we will have power together with all of your saints, God, to grasp and comprehend how high, how wide, how deep, how long your love is, and that we would come to know, God, come to know the love of Christ, the love of our Savior, God, in a way that surpasses head knowledge. I believe that this is a miracle, Lord. I believe that only the Holy Spirit can teach us this and give us this. I pray, Lord, that we will grow to, to chase this, God, to chase your love, to comb the scriptures, Lord, to let it affect our prayer lives, God, that we will come to know your love and live in your love and be fully satisfied. Thank you, Father, for your love. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for what you're doing. And I pray, Lord, in your holy name, God, you will bless this house in your name. Amen.